This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now look, y'all, it is crazy outside. There's all kinds of stuff going on. If you are working a nine to five, you're probably stressed out about keeping your nine to five. If you don't have a nine to five, you're probably in the middle of trying to get a new nine to five. Or maybe you made the crazy leap to be a full-time entrepreneur like me. You got the world on fire all around you, middle of election year. A lot of stuff going on. It's just, it's absolutely nuts, right? It's nuts outside. And I could definitely see, I'll speak for me. Look, for me, I know I be going to therapy on a regular basis. I believe in therapy, all right? Hashtag uh, black folks need therapy. Hashtag we all need therapy. We all need it. And for me, I can say if it wasn't for therapy being like an ongoing maintenance tool in my toolkit to help me stay level and help me realize that I'm okay, everything around me is okay, here's what I can control, that has been critical for me. And I would hope that if you have thought about therapy, and if, or if you haven't thought about therapy, shoot, let's say you're like, like I ain't got time for therapy, I got, I'm too busy trying to make sure that these plates keep on spinning, I hope that you check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online. It's completely convenient, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, keyword licensed therapist, and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge, which is incredible. It's very challenging to move around and find the right therapist for you. The fact that BetterHelp is providing that as just part of your experience is incredible. So find your support, get the help you need with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash corp today to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash corp, C-O-R-P. Living Corporate is brought to you by Canaries. Let me tell you about Canaries. Canaries is a tech company formed in 2018 by black founders who experienced inequities in the corporate world like most of us in the workplace. They saw typical diversity initiatives, but knew that to create systemic change, diversity, equity, and inclusion needed to be done differently. They're still ahead of the curve, focusing on the E and the I using a data-driven approach. Think Canary in the Coal Mine, the name is a nod to the canaries coal miners used to bring into mines to determine if the work environment was safe or undesirable. That's what they do for companies. They help you find the folks you need to listen to, the canaries, who will help you diagnose, measure, and attack your DEI challenges. Canaries has your back. Check them out at www.canaries.com backslash employer. That's www. K-A-N-A-R-Y-S dot com backslash employer. Living Corporate is brought to you by Black Men in Tech. Black Men in Tech's mission is to elevate the voice of black men in the technology space by offering year-round engagement opportunities and philanthropic contributions for people in the black community, the neighborhood. In the tech industry, black men regularly struggle to access networking and career advancement opportunities. At Black Men in Tech 2021, they are partnering with their allies to create a safer space where black men can share their experiences authentically. Through this effort, Black Men in Tech hopes to share knowledge that can be used by black attendees to overcome race-based obstacles, while also offering non-black allies the chance to learn how they can be more supportive of their melanated colleagues. To learn more about the Black Men in Tech conference that will be happening on June 19th at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, check them out at Black Men in Tech. Dot com. That's B-L-K-M-E-N-I-N-T-E-C-H dot com. Black Men in Tech. 
What's up, y'all? It's Zach with Living Corporate, and it's Tuesday. If you're listening on Tuesday, but maybe listen on another day. Uh, but we're recording this, and we drop this every Tuesday. These are Real Talk Tuesdays. Real Talk Tuesdays are where we sit down with some executive, entrepreneur, elected official, activist, professor, thought leader, or author, or celebrity, influencer, and we're talking about something regarding diversity, equity, and inclusion. We're talking about the experiences of those on the margins in very tangible tactile like real ways that's the purpose of real talk tuesdays we're having real talk with folks that often are not provided the platform to either to give that real talk or because of just like the politics of where they work maybe they don't real talk a lot on public platforms right so today is really cool because we're actually talking to stephanie creary excuse me let me put some respect on that dr stephanie creary dr stephanie creary is an assistant professor of management at Wharton and the Wharton School of University of Pennsylvania, with support from Moody's Corporation and Diversity Inc., published a new study called Improving Workplace Culture Through Evidence-Based Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Practices. And so we sit down and we talk about the findings of her research uh, because she was the lead researcher for this entire program, for this entire project. Uh, Not only that, but we talk about how um, her near over 20 years of experience helps to inform um, the work itself, as well as the future of the workplace as it pertains to workplace equity. So really excited to sit down and talk to Dr. Creary. I'm excited that she was able to uh, be a guest on the show. Make sure that you check out uh, the research itself. We put the link in the show notes, learn more about the work that she's doing. Shout out to Black Academics. Uh, Shout out to the work that y'all do. You know, like the thing about it is, is that so many of us, right, like if you were to like put the thesis of a lot of these papers, a lot of these findings, it's black folks been told y'all, right? So it's it's interesting because to many of us who, when as you hear this conversation, if you're a part of, uh, you know, a marginalized community, you know, you're going to hear this and you're going to be like, yeah, we know this. But the way that white supremacy works is so many things have to be validated in these structures and frameworks that, um, you know, Eurocentric frames and educational uh, frames have demanded that they be put in. So I'm thankful for Dr. Creary for doing this work and taking the incredible amount of emotional labor to put this together um, and hopefully help shift and push systems uh, to better create equity for those on the margins. But before we get there, we're going to tap in with Tristan. See you in a minute. What's going on, Living Corporate? It's Tristan, and I want to thank you for tapping back in with me as I provide some tips and advice for professionals. Today, let's talk about how you can answer the question, are you interviewing with other companies? While on your job search, you should absolutely be applying to and interviewing with multiple companies. But during these interviews, it's not uncommon for these companies to want to know if you're entertaining other employers. In most cases, this is a positive sign that the company has some interest in you, and the way you answer this question can sometimes help speed up the process and even potentially land you an offer. So you don't want to fumble the answer to this question and ruin your chances. If you encounter this question, I always suggest being as honest as possible. Your answer can spark a sense of urgency, show the employer that your skills are coveted on the market, and create a fear of missing out on great talent. If the company does like you, they may expedite your process to get you an offer as soon as possible. 
Let's say you're in the running for a couple of other positions. You could say something like, I'm currently in the final interview process with two companies who said they'd get back to me within the next two weeks. But don't just leave it there. The trick is to show the employer that their position is high up on your list. So I would follow up that statement with something like, while those roles are both great and I'm really fortunate to have had these conversations, the role with your company is the one that interests me the most. Or, from everything I've read and the conversations we've had, I think this opportunity with your company excites me the most. Now, what if you've been interviewing but haven't made it to the final interview stage yet? You can tell the employer, I'm actively applying to opportunities at the moment and I'm looking forward to landing the ideal role for me. While it may not create the same sense of urgency, it still lets them know that you're actively on the market and there's an opportunity for other companies to scoop up your talent. If you're a top contender for other roles or already have offers on the table, don't be afraid to use those as leverage when speaking to potential employers to streamline the interview process and increase your earning potential. This tip is brought to you by Tristan of Layfield Resume Consulting. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Layfield Resume, or connect with me, Tristan Layfield, on LinkedIn. At Living Corporate, we often talk about how we as black folks show up at work and how these corporate power structures impact how we show up. But we know when work ends, we come home, log off, and have to show up at home for our families and communities. And as a black man, I often turn to Let's Talk, bruh, for the real, honest, and healing conversations on black masculinity, mental health, and patriarchy. Let's Talk, bruh, or LTB is a platform that creates content around black masculinity and the impact of patriarchy in black communities. In other words, Let's Talk Bruh is having real conversations that black men need to hear and be a part of. Let's Talk Bruh creates interactive, healing, and learning experiences with black men and male socialized folks of all sexual orientations and gender identities. Through their content and community-based programs, Let's Talk Bruh seeks to reduce patriarchal violence in our community and provide support to those most impacted by patriarchal violence, specifically black women, girls, femmes, queer, trans, non-binary, and gender non-conforming people. Tap in at letstalkbruh.com. To be clear, that's letstalkbruh.com. So brothers, what are you waiting for? Let's talk, bruh. Stephanie, welcome to the show. How you doing? Oh, doing so well. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start with your story, how you ended up um, like in in higher academia, like just and how you ended up doing the work that you're doing. Yeah, well, it's a it's an interesting story. I didn't start off thinking that I would be a, a business school professor. I actually used to work in healthcare, and it was actually my experiences working in healthcare with patients that had me thinking about issues of uh, diversity in the workplace. Now, prior to that, like I think many people who I've met who are scholars on the topics of identity and diversity, I was very involved in issues of diversity on my college campus, but I hadn't been thinking about uh, tackling these topics uh, on a professional level. But once I started working in the workplace, um, issues of gender and race became very salient to me, not only in my interactions with the patients, but also with my collaborators. And so a few years after I had started working in healthcare, I decided to get an MBA. And in my MBA program, it became apparent to me that this study of the workplace called organizational behavior really was where my sweet spot is. And from there, I just began to work on faculty research, got a 
a research position at Harvard Business School. And, and really, it was that position that introduced me to this topic of corporate diversity, equity, inclusion practices. And so that was in 2007. So, you know, I've just been steadily working my way through uh, both applied and academic research on this topic. And so I guess my question is, like, as someone who exists in the ivory, like what points of connection do you see between the work that you're doing and the, the your research and your findings for the corporate American context to uh, higher ed? Yeah, so I see my research as very grounded. As I, as I mentioned, I was a working professional outside of academia prior to embarking on this research. So the questions that I ask are really much grounded in people's everyday lived experiences. So what is it like to work in an organization that touts a diversity agenda, but my day-to-day -day experience may not be feeling the effects of all of this investment and all these resources that my company is, is committing to this process. So for me, uh, my latest report that's looking at um, evidence-based diversity, equity, inclusion practices really is, I would say, a culmination of 15 years of, of mulling over this, this idea of you know, if if we're going to put all these practices into place, employee resource groups, mentoring and sponsorship programs, uh, what do they actually do? Do they help to boost our engagement, our belonging? Do they create equity? Does it change my job satisfaction? So for me, having research that's grounded in the things that I think everyday people care about is really important. I agree. And especially, you know, in this era where folks are kind of like just talking around concepts or or just speaking about about diversity, equity, inclusion in very theoretical frames, I think the more grounded and practical we can get, the better. Otherwise, you run the risk of it just being more noise. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I think it's, you know, now that diversity, equity, inclusion, I would say, has gone mainstream, <laughs> you know, it's the, the, the field of study. Uh, as an academic topic has been around for 50 years, at least. And probably even if you go back further to uh, social psychologists studying issues of intergroup relations, right? Um, the practice of, of something that was an earlier version of what we're calling diversity, equity, inclusion started in the United States in the 1960s with the historic civil rights legislation. So I say that because what we're seeing now, the iteration of lots of new concepts, including belonging and, you know, whatever the new term du jour becomes, is really a manifestation of a broader group of people feeling like something like diversity, equity, inclusion might be of importance, but not really understanding what that might look like in practice or how to achieve those outcomes beyond the talk. And so I would say, you know, as, a, as an academic, you know, we're very good at concepts and creating concepts, but more importantly, we're very good at understanding relationships between what different groups say they want to achieve and, and whether they're actually achieving those outcomes that they're, they set out to achieve. So, you know, let's talk a bit, I mean, as, as we talk about like just your work in general and really this research you're getting into, let's talk a bit about your findings, right? And so, you know, I, I'd like to understand, you know, I'm, I'm looking at like these three major takeaways, but I really want to just hear, you know, you wax poetic a bit about, you know, what it is you're hoping that leaders are going to do with this information? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I think part of that is understanding what the motivation for the study was. 
Um, and so, as I mentioned, I've been involved in either applied or academic research on the topic of diversity, equity, inclusion for more than a decade. Um, and one of the things that has been true for this amount of time is that both scholars and practitioners have asked the question, uh, what do these initiatives that we put in place, what do they actually accomplish? And so the study is essentially trying to understand if all of the more the quintessential practices, like I've mentioned earlier, mentoring and sponsorship, employee resource groups, which we talk about as internal diversity partners, education and training, which is what everyone wants to talk about, does it work? What do these things actually accomplish and can they help us to build this thing called a more inclusive culture? So for us, part of the study, um, the initial impetus was understanding what are diversity, equity, inclusion experts, analytics practitioners, what are they trying to do? Um, first of all, what practices are they putting in place? Second, how are they measuring the effectiveness of these practices? And third, do any of these practices actually shift the needle on inclusion in, in the way that these companies would like? And so the, the long story short here is we found that while companies were engaging in a lot of different practices, right, a lot of different initiatives, a lot of different activities, they weren't necessarily measuring the outcomes or the effectiveness of these practices. And so we like to use a, a medical analogy here. We talk about practices, things like mentoring and sponsorship, things like diversity training, things like employee resource groups as medicine that is sitting on the shelf in your medicine cabinet. And we like to think of things like inclusion, belonging, respect, turnover, intent, job satisfaction, you name it, as potential ailments that you have. The question that we wanted to know was, do companies know which medicines they need to take when they experience a certain ailment? And by and large, at the start of our study, we realized that that was not a common way of thinking about diversity, equity, inclusion. So it wasn't evidence-based. It wasn't that I will go choose these medicines or these practices when I'm feeling this type of belonging pain or inclusion pain or you know equity pain. And so for us, that was a huge finding. Uh, and then there's obviously the results around what works or what do these different practices do. And, and some of my favorite findings are related to this set of outcomes that we just colloquially refer to as speaking up, right? And so we talk about these as prohibitive voice, promotive voice, or supportive voice. Those are the academic terms, but for all intents and purposes, speaking up. And so what we found in one part of our study, the data that um, you all have access to as part of the report that we released, we found that women and people of color um, were more likely to engage in speaking up behavior. They were more likely to speak out against bias. They were more likely to advocate for someone of color or a woman to be considered for a position at the company. They were more likely to be champions and advocates for their company's diversity initiatives. Um, and so I think for many of us, as we've looked over the last year at all of the DEI work that has been done, particularly with regards to race, as racial equity has become of interest, um, in a more widespread fashion, we're not surprised, right? We're not surprised that women and people of color or women of color are, are doing all this work. But what we ended up finding out through our study was if we want to be able to encourage more people to engage in speaking up behavior, not just women of color, what are the sets of practices that a company would put in place in order to drive that behavior, right? So things like having uh, you know, a manager who's actively involved in who takes the initiative to talk about diversity, equity, inclusion uh, becomes important. 
having access to other people in the company who aren't uh, it's not their day job. You know, their title doesn't include diversity in it. Seeing you know, people who are VPs or people who work like marketing or finance take on the task of supporting the company's diversity initiatives, that becomes really important. So I'd say by and large, there's lots of really interesting, cool findings. I hope everyone reads the reports, but I would encourage people to look at the speaking up findings because I do think as we're beginning to talk about behavior change, what is it that we want to see done differently in corporate organizations? So much of what I learned from my research does relate to this notion of getting people more actively involved and engaged in the company's diversity work and not just leaning on women, people of color and women of color to do the lion's share of the work. And Dr. Curie, I think I think my my challenge and my frustration in this moment, right, speaking as someone who has not been studying DEI academically for over a decade, um, who is not as credentialed as yourself. Why is it that organizations aren't being outcomes based or data driven in their efforts? I mean, at Living Corporate, we talk a lot about like just the function of white supremacy, patriarchy and capitalism in these corporate contexts. Why is it in 2021 we're still having to do this level of research? And why is it that once again, that there's a black woman yourself leading the charge in this way? In any of your research, or even in your findings, your perspective, what is like the root cause? You talk, you talk about these illnesses, and I, I agree with you. I, I, I would challenge and maybe say that they're symptoms. Like, at what point would you say, like, what would you say is the root cause of like all of this extra labor that again, black and brown folks are having to do yourself and doing the research, me interviewing you, like us having these conversations? What's the root of all of this? Yeah, yeah, it's a big question, right? So let me break it down into pieces. You know, when you think about the fact that companies are investing all of this money in these initiatives, so like, what's the point here? What, what are they trying to achieve? And I would say that has actually been the problem, right? Is I would say that this amorphous idea of creating a culture where everybody can thrive and survive and feel like they can contribute and be successful. These are the words. This is the rhetoric that is often used. And I would say that it attracts people like you and me, Black people, to the company to come and work there because somehow it seems that maybe our experiences working in this organization might be perhaps a little bit more positive than they are on a daily basis. I think there's been a lot of hope and a lot of optimism in the field, but hope and optimism isn't what drives action, isn't what creates change. And so if I think about the field of diversity, equity, inclusion, the field of diversity, equity, inclusion practice, I would you know, submit to you that for so long, the people who previously have done the work, I'm talking about the veterans, not the people who leave every two years, right? Sure, not the new sure, people, sure, sure. but the veterans were people who really felt that by creating mentoring programs, by creating employee resource groups, by creating communities, by giving people voice, by creating training, they really did believe that that would help to create an environment where black and brown people and anyone in the minority could survive and thrive. But they weren't necessarily as attuned to the measurement aspect of it. And, and that's just because training is different, right? I'm a social scientist. My job is to measure whether things actually work. And that's not necessarily, I would say, what the strengths of people who have historically entered into this field. Um, and, and, you know, we, we admit in the research how much it was important for us to not only draw on the skills and expertise of people who are, I call them the people people, right? They specialize in putting practices and programs and initiatives into place that are designed to create positive workplace experiences. So that's your EI leaders, that's your HR leaders. 
there, there are those people. And, th and that's a talent and that's a skill set. And that requires expertise in order to know what types of initiatives might you put into place. But for all intents and purposes, I would say that a, lar a large part of what they've been doing has been hypothesis driven, right? It's been, we think that if we put a mentoring program in place, it will help to advance somebody's career. But you have to test that, right? You have to measure that. And so I guess what I'm what I'm coming to here is that it, it requires a different skill set in order to begin to assess outcomes. Now, to your other part of your question around, I would say what comes up a lot when I'm talking to people is let's just take a corporate organization. Corporate organizations don't survive and thrive if no one measures the outcomes, right? So why is diversity being treated any differently? Well, that's the question of the day. Why is it that people are treating diversity, equity, inclusion differently than they're treating like any other business process? And so I would say as a root cause for understanding why we have to do this research as academics to help the field, it's because diversity, equity, inclusion has not en masse across organizations been treated just like everything else um, that is needed in order for a, a company to do well. It's been treated as a nice to have. It's been often marginalized as something that perhaps is not as important as things that bring in uh, in a direct manner, dollars and cents. And so it becoming deprioritized would also be a reason for why um, we're still doing this work. But I would say, you know, what's different now um, than what has been the case in, in previous years is that more people with different skill sets. So the people, people, the analytics people, right, the finance people are all now looking at the challenge and the opportunities around DEI and trying to figure out how to move the needle. And that's very different from where we used to be. So I appreciate that, Dr. Curry. And I, and I think, like I, again, I come, I come to this as like a regular dude, <laughs> family <laughs> from the South, first generation, college graduate, et cetera, et cetera. I think the reason we don't take it serious is because of white supremacy. I think people just don't care. Like, because like, you know, you wouldn't have, and we're going to get into, I, I want to talk about this research a bit more, but you don't, we don't treat other parts of the business like this, where we just kind of like throw things at the wall. Like we actually go in with research and we, we use data and then we have like actual milestones and marks. And then when those milestones and marks aren't met, there's points of accountability held. And for whatever reason, we just don't do that. Like, and, and I, when, when I say for whatever reason, I mean, I, I think the, the reason behind that lack of care I don't think it's mysterious. I think that there's an underlying just deep bias against centering those on the margins. Yes, yeah, so you are not wrong. But let me talk to you uh, in, in more lay terms. And I'm going to talk to you in terms of reds, yellows, and greens, right? Let's start with greens. With respect to diversity, equity, inclusion practices and organization, the green group are people who are always going to hold up the mantle, right? <laughs> They're going to be doing all the work creating all of the energy and continuing to try to get other people involved and engaged in this work, no matter what, right? And so what does that look like in a company? Who are the greens? Well, the greens are the people who sign up for the diversity role. The greens are people who create employee resource groups. The greens are the people who are pushing the company to release statements against racism. The greens are people who are trying to do everything that they can as a, as a I call it a side hustle, to hold their companies accountable to this work, right? Then we have the yellows. The yellows are the people who are like, eh, I'm not really sure how I feel about diversity, equity, inclusion. On the one hand, I can see that it's really important, but on the other hand, is this 
the business of our company? Should this be something that we're dealing with in the workplace? Not entirely convinced that this is something that businesses should care about. Isn't this just a social issue? So on and so forth. Those are the yellows. Now, what's great about the yellows is they're ambivalent, which means they can go either way, right? So, so it's the jobs of the greens. It's the job of the greens to help try to pull the yellows toward their positive nature and not swing toward that side of their, their ambivalence that is you know, negative or thinking that it's not important. Then there's the reds, right? We always have to have red. And red is a group of people that is like, I'm absolutely not thinking that we should be spending any time investing any resources in this topic. It feels like a distraction. It feels like we're prioritizing people of color and women. Isn't this reverse racism? That's that group, right? Now, to your question here around white supremacy, where do they sit? Well, they could sit in any one of those groups, right? I'm not going to pretend that people who hold white supremacist beliefs, right, or, or the, the nature of white supremacy is baked in the system, does, only sits in the red. Because many people don't even know. They don't even know that they are prioritizing or privileging, you know, Eurocentric norms in their day to day. And they may think they are green, right? So, so I was, the idea of white supremacy being perpetuated could exist in any of those groups. But I think to your point, um, you know, if we're not moving the needle, it must mean, and this I would say is a hypothesis, it must mean that there are more reds in positions of power than there are greens and yellow. And that to me is actually the truth, right? There are more people in positions of power who have the capacity to help things change in their organization, but they are red, right? They haven't been fully convinced um, that, that, that this is important. What, what I think we saw over the last year was more uh, leaders moving um, from red to yellow and perhaps more leaders moving from yellow to green. Um, but the greens have always been there, right? Pushing on the yellows and the yellows push on the reds. And, and that's essentially why we're still talking about this, right? Is, is it, there is a power dynamic here. There is a, this idea of when I'm in charge of a company, um, as a CEO, I do have considerable leeway in terms of where I direct our resources and our attention. And if those resources and attention is not going to DEI, it's a concentrated choice. You know, let's talk a bit, you know, about one of the major findings or just the, the call outs is around just turnover. We continue to talk about, and, I, and, I, and especially in tech, we know, <laughs> we know that turnover is sometimes three, four X, you know, higher for our black and brown employees compared to their white counterparts. Mm-hmm. I guess what I'm, what I'm curious about is what if all in your research indicates the leading factors of that turnover? Yeah. So what we didn't measure in our study was we, you know, we focused on understanding the relationships between, again, those medicines, the practices and the outcomes. So our our goal wasn't to understand every factor in the company that or individual or group level or organizational or societal level factors, if if you will, that drive turnover. We were just trying to see of these groups of practices, what do they actually do? But I, I can talk to you a little bit about what research on this topic talks about with respect to turnover is what we know is, you know, intent to turn or intent to leave one's company is often driven by lack of feeling that I can be successful here. I don't have the capacity to grow. I'm not getting signals that I have a future here beyond my current role. So that's a, that's a primary factor. I would say then there's issues of, you know, racism and sexism and whether you want to call them microaggressions or, 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 or macroaggressions. There's this idea that 
the interactions, my daily lived experiences of working in this company and the interactions that I have with other people are not healthy. They are toxic. And so I can't be here, right? So we have a whole set of cultural factors that also drive one's intent to actually leave the company. Um, and so if we look at tech and especially tech over the last 10 years and what issues have they been trying to, to deal with, one of them has been cultural issues, right? Has been, you know, to some extent, people are attracted to tech because there's potentially less bureaucracy than there is in, in other industries, right? This idea of a flatter hierarchy, meaning that I, even if I don't have a fancy title, um, I'm able to contribute and be heard. But that's not what we've learned. That's not the reality for everyone, meaning that's not the reality for people, many people of color, particularly black and brown people, I want to suggest, in tech. And so what we see is that black and brown people um, are not um, feeling as connected to the tech space as perhaps their white and Asian peers are because the culture in and of itself in tech isn't uh, a culture that's suggesting that um, they are welcomed and appreciated for what they have to contribute. Um, so first of all, thank you for the answer. It's interesting. You know, when we talk about there are certain assumptions made when you like read, you know, I don't want to say popular articles, but when you read like major publications about the workplace and expectations and sometimes people even make sweeping generalizations about millennials or Gen Z and like, oh, well, you know, millennials don't really care about title. They just want to make sure they have balance. And, and you know, I would challenge that for those on the margins, many of us do care about title because we recognize that with that title comes a demanded level of respect or an understanding that we have a mutual expectation that you're going to talk to me a certain way. I'm going to have access to certain things. Right. And so like, I hear you as it pertains to turnover, this idea that like folks are just leaving because they don't, they don't see a path for them. They don't, they don't see a path forward for them. You know, I'm curious as we talk about the future of work and we look at like the next, you know, nine years or so, right. Like let's, let's look at the end of 2030 based on your research. And then just based on your, based on the, the the several years of experience that you have in this space, what do you see being like the major um, events or like where, where do you see DEI as a space going? Yeah, it's such a great question. Before I answer that, I do want to um, call out something that you raised because I think it's really important for people to recognize. Um, and, you know, we talk a lot about the importance that representation matters um, in organizations. And, and it matters in so many ways, but it also matters when it comes to data, right? So if you do a study and the study does not have sufficient representation of black and brown people in it, and you make conclusions about generations, are you actually capturing generational experiences that include black and brown people? Or are you capturing generational experiences that include people who are not black and brown? And so think about this as if you're in the minority, if people are in the minority in your industry, such as tech, it is more than likely that a lot of the conclusions that are being drawn, unless they have a critical mass of black and brown people, which is often not the case, that's the problem that tech has, is it is often the case that they are not capturing um, to your point, the experience of black and brown people. So it's this weird conundrum that we have, right? Unless we're represented, um, our experiences don't often get picked up in data. So we have to be represented in order for people to account for the specific issues and challenges and, and, and desires that we have. And so I just wanted to, to, to call that out because you talked about the fact that from your own personal experience, 
that you believe that position and authority and rank matter, but tech keeps saying or industries keep saying that uh, generations don't value that. And, and I think you're, you're raising a very important issue is did they interview people of color based on generations? Because I would surmise something different. And I would say that that's something that we all have to think about as consumers and as workers is read who was in the sample. Look and see, was the sample diverse? Because if the sample wasn't diverse, then they might not be talking about you. Now to your next point about the future of DEI, um, you know, for me, the future has to entail, you know, accountability. And, and from a perspective of a researcher, what that means is if you're going to put an intervention, as we would call it, into place, so if you're going to implement um, a, a mentoring program, an employee resource group, a diversity training, the future um, state of DEI should be measuring the extent to which that intervention is actually driving some meaningful outcomes. Um, and, and, and so that would be a fantastic future state. I would say that, you know, anecdotally, based on my conversations with organizations, you know, every day I get a different email from some company who wants to implement some sort of you know, training or some sort of, you know, educational event for their employees. And, you know, they call them like requests for proposals. And so I've read a couple of these and I've been, you know, pleasantly surprised to see that they're asking the people who want to bid for this uh, work, they're asking people to actually say what outcomes mm -hmm. that they think that their intervention will address. And they also want to say, how are you going to measure its effectiveness? So for me, as a, as a social scientist, I would say that that would be a great future state is that we're actually holding ourselves um, as scholars and practitioners accountable to seeing what our investment is actually achieving. I love that. Dr. Curie, this has been an incredible conversation. Let me just ask you one last thing. and I'll let you go. Okay. So let's talk a bit about, you had three points of advice for executives really looking to create an impact and organizational transformation as it pertains to diversity, equity, and inclusion in their organizations, what would those three points of advice be? Yeah, it's a great question. So I would say the first would be have a robust set of practices um, in your company so that you're not relying on any single factor to drive results. And so in our study, we look at seven categories of diversity, equity, inclusion practices, and we found that companies that had more of those um, practices in place as opposed to just one. So if you're only doing diversity training versus if you're doing diversity training and mentoring and you know a whole bunch of other things that we capture employee resource groups in our study. So companies that have a more robust set that are doing more of or are covering more of the seven categories are able to drive outcomes in a way that is much stronger and much more sustainable than companies that are only, I would say, you know, embarking on, on a one hit wonder, right? So for executives, make sure that you're investing across the spectrum of diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives. I would say the second is um, the who, right? Who, who should be doing this work? And executives should be engaging in diversity work. So what does that look like? You know, companies that create diversity um, councils, what they are focused on is creating opportunities for people across the organization, no matter the day-to-day -day responsibilities, but um, adhering to 
making sure that no matter your rank, so if you're a high level senior executive, you too should have some responsibility for diversity um, as it relates to your direct reports, your business units, et cetera. So for executives, the recommendation is, is making sure that the responsibility for diversity is spread across people, across levels, that it's not just the what seemingly seems a burden to the person who has the quote unquote chief diversity officer role. And, and then the third set of recommendations for executives is realize that this is a long term business process, just like everything else companies do. What we know to be true is, is short term investment is never the right answer when it comes to um, looking at whether or not something is, is important in a company. So, so investing in short-term gains or investing in short-term initiatives is not good business practice, right? So we can't treat diversity, um, equity, inclusion practices as a short-term initiative or short-term investment. So how do we begin to think about uh, our diversity work, just like every other business process, being here for the long haul? And what resources do we need to commit to it in terms of financial resources and human resources um, and energy resources in order to allow it to sustain and, and, and help carry our company. So I would say those are my recommendations. Dr. Stephanie J. Creary, Professor of Management at the Wharton School uh, of the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, thank you so much for being a guest. Consider you a friend of the show. And you know what? Shout out to all the Black academics out there. You know what I mean? Like, y'all do not get enough shine at all. It's crazy. What's up with that, Dr. Creary? What's going on? You know, I would say that maybe academia isn't as sexy as some of the other things that people go into, but I would tell people, here, here's the deal. You know, we've had this thing called coronavirus over the last mm -hmm. year, and a lot of academics are allowing us to start walking around without our masks on. So shout out to all of the academics in all fields of science and social science who are without being, you know, I would say, you know, given their due uh, props, um, are, are carrying the load. So yeah. go science. For sure. For go, go sciences, go academics. Now, for real, we, I, I really, I'm honored and I'm always excited when we're able to get y'all here because y'all's work is so critical. So we consider you a friend of the show and we look forward to having you back. All right. Thank you so much for having me. This was my pleasure. Living Corporate is brought to you by The Leadership Range, a podcast within the Living Corporate Network. Hosted by globally certified and Fortune 500 executive coach and leadership development expert Neil Edwards, the leadership range is focused on having real, raw, soulful, and accountable conversations about inclusive leadership, allyship, professional development. Every week is a new episode with new learning and new actions to take on to grow inclusively. Make sure you check out the leadership range everywhere you listen to podcasts. And we're back. Yo, thank you so much again. Shout out to Dr. Creary. Shout out to the entire team. Incredible work. Shout out to black academics around the world. I can name a bunch of folks, but shout out to all the black academics that have been guests on Living Corporate, who have been fans of Living Corporate. Thank you for all your effort, all of your labor, all of your work. Y'all, listen, if you didn't check it out last week, this is me reminding y'all, we do have the Pfizer campaign going. We're actually spotlighting black and brown uh, executives. We're actually spotlighting black executives at Pfizer and talking about their respective journeys, 
the work on the COVID-19 vaccine and the work that Pfizer's doing internally to create a choice place for, for black employees. So I hope you take the time, go back and listen. We're dropping the next installment to that series next week. And um, look, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Until next time, this has been Zach. Make sure you give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Share this with a friend or two, a colleague, a boss, somebody that you don't like. I don't care. Share it with somebody, y'all. All right. Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.